building. I actually shared pretty extensively last week and the week before, and I think most of you have probably heard. Um, but just to encourage everybody, that ultimately the past six years, it's really only been September that we've been gathering on Sundays and establishing kind of a local church reality. Um, and even prior to that, it was just the year before that we made our prayer meetings public. Um, really before that, the beginning stages of JHOP, it was really a private prayer meeting with about six intercessors um, that really were devoting their lives to seeing historic revival in New England. Um, and really, all I can say is the journey has been completely supernatural. Like, none of it is anything that I or an individual or any one person could have brought about or strategized or mastermind. It really just came about by seeking the Lord, trusting the Lord, and obeying. And really looking back hindsight and going, wow, isn't God amazing? <laughs> so I just want to encourage everybody that I think that we're at one of those crossroads once again. Um, that there's lots of unknowns, and even um, in the natural, there's really no way for us to bring it to pass. But we're, I think it's another part of our prophetic history where we're going to look back and say, isn't God amazing? And um, be really in awe of how he works out the details. Um, but we're, we're actually going to take a second to pray over the tithes and the offerings and to give to the Lord as an act of worship. God, we just thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to be able to demonstrate and even declare our love to you Lord, through the giving of finances. So God, we say, Lord, when we give our tithes and offerings, God, we don't do it out of obligation. God, we don't do it because it's a requirement, but God, we say we do it because of love. Lord, because of adoration, because you are the only one that is found worthy. God, that you're worthy of our time and our yes. devotion, our finance. God, so we we give you offering, Father, as an act of worship, saying we place you above all else. Yeah. Lord, we honor you before all else. God, we even ask, Lord, that you would um, free our hearts, God, from the fear of lack. Lord, that you would free our hearts, God, even from the, um, that, that, that place of struggling to provide in our own strength. And Lord, bring us into the place as individuals and even as a ministry, God, the realm of the supernatural. Lord, that it's only by your hand that we are sustained, and it's only by your hand that we flourish, Father. So we worship you today, and we honor you with our finance. Amen. I'm actually going to grab. Is this mine here? Is that yours? Is this yours? Uh, that's yours. Okay. They want to grab your water. Some type of stand or something? I, I usually stick it here, which is a little bit of a balancing act. But um, So we're actually going to pick up in the book of Acts um, where we have left off. So today we're going to be covering Acts 17 and 18. Yeah. Um, and for those of you that don't know, there's a little bit of a, a nugget of a hidden treasure in Acts 18. There's a little bit of um, a mystery. Um, it's not even fully detailed or outlined, but um, theologians all agree. And it's kind of, um, it really kind of can't be disputed as far as what's being discussed there. But it actually ends up touching on one of my favorite topics um, to preach on and teach on. So <laughs> I actually am really excited about Acts chapter 18. So what we're going to do is we're going to outline 17 so we all have a clear understanding. I think mostly everybody that's here has been kind of following the storyline of Acts and understanding the bigger picture of the entire book. Um, but basically we pick up Acts chapter 17 verse 1 through 4 is Paul in Thessalonica. Um, and as we've seen throughout the entire storyline of Acts, 
Um, we've looked very closely at the sermons that were preached from, um, from Peter, from Philip, Philip from, um, from Paul, all of, from Stephen, everybody that has preached the word of the Lord, we've looked very closely at their messages. And the astounding thing has been that with every message, all they are simply preaching is the man Christ Jesus. That when you come to every single message and you're kind of like, oh, what are they going to preach now? And you're wondering what it's going to be. They are preaching the, the, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is in entirety. And that was the power of the gospel. And basically what you find here is it's Paul in Thessalonica, chapter 17. And then what you find specifically in verse 3, is, and it says, it shows what he's preaching. He says, explaining and de demonstrating that the Christ had suffered and rise, rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's once again preaching Jesus. And I think one of the things that as I've been looking at the book of Acts in like chapter after chapter, that my heart is just struck with over and over again, is that we would fall in love with the wonder of the man Jesus Christ. The wonder of who he is. The extraordinary thing about the book of Acts is they could not stop talking about him. They could not stop. It was not something out of obligation. It wasn't something because it was their vocation or their career. It, it was derived from nothing else than sheer passion, sheer desire, and they could not be restrained. All throughout this book we even find persecution, the hardship that was inflicted upon them because of preaching the name of Christ. But yet regardless of circumstance, they couldn't be silent. And really it stirs such passion in my heart that we as the church, the man Jesus Christ, that he would be the epicenter of our conversation. That he would be at the very center of what we meditate on, what we think about, what we converse about. I mean, at the very, very center of even in our workplace, of not evangelizing out of obligation because it's our duty as a Christian. But I can't help speak the name of Jesus. Because it's such a reality in our lives and it's such an overflow of our day-to-day -day experience that it's not an experience we had 10 years ago of salvation or experience five years ago of when he delivered us, but there's such a daily exchange and it's such a fresh and living word in our heart that regardless of where we are in circumstance or people group, we actually, it's like Jeremiah even said, my heart burns within me. The word of the Lord is like fire, shut up in my bones. That place of the living reality of Jesus Christ, and that's what we find all throughout the book of Acts. It's the simplicity of Jesus. And if we do nothing else, and we learn nothing else from the book of Acts, it's that we would even pray that, that we would fall in love with the man Christ Jesus. That our heart would be struck with wonder and awe of who he is. And if you even think about to the very casual degree that his name is uttered in the United States, even in a, in a cursing tone, in a casual tone, that when we hear the name of Jesus, our heart would be struck with wonder and awe with who he is. Reverence, worship, adoration, that it, we endlessly could never, never cease to speak of what it is that he is doing and stirring within our spirits. But oftentimes we live from such a dry, barren place that we're actually not having fresh experience or even fresh revelation of who he is. That in that place of even just in, in casual exchange with other believers, what's the Lord speaking to you? What's stirring in your heart? You almost see panic come on people's 
face is like, did you just ask me that? Because I've had no time with the Lord and there's absolutely nothing new. <laughs> I mean, which is awful because for us it should be that place if it's the living reality and the overflow of our lives. That even as we see in, in Paul here, they can't help but speak of the name of Jesus. They can't refrain their words from, and regardless of the trouble that followed them, Jesus is what was being declared. I mean, the mystery of it is, is that when we look at the book of Acts with the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the expansion of the church, the, the evangelization of people groups, the, the, the gospel going forth swiftly with power, if we want to look at almost what is the secret or what is the key, it's the place where their heart was truly fascinated with Jesus Christ. And that simple truth alone, if we were drawn back to that place of love and fascination with Jesus Christ, let's just posture our hearts for a second in prayer. God, we just come before you even now, God, as we recognize that even in Thessalonica, that everywhere that Paul went, he was uttering and testifying of Jesus Christ. God, we ask, Lord, right now, Lord, would you tenderize our hearts, Lord, to even fall more deeply in love with Jesus. God, we ask, Lord, that any place that our hearts are just distant and, and even have lost touch of fellowship and communion, God, that you would draw us back to that place, Lord, that our hearts are awakened in love and experiential knowledge. And, Lord, that we can't help but speak the name of Jesus and testify of his presence in our life and testify of what he is stirring and provoking within us. God, we just say we want to see the beauty of Jesus in every aspect of our life, the fullness of the man Christ Jesus. God, stir our hearts in wonder and awe. We worship you. So we find Paul in Thessalonica here testifying of Jesus, and then as we find all throughout the book of Acts, verse 5, the riots break out. <laughs> it just kind of follows him. The, the rioting begins, and it was actually testified... Um, in verse 6 specifically, it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And that was the testimony of this small group of people, that they were turning the world upside down. And the extraordinary thing is all they were doing was preaching Jesus. There was really nothing extraordinary, great, no great PowerPoint, no great light show. They didn't come with an awesome administration team. They didn't come with a fabulous crusade. They really came in weakness, just declaring the simplicity of Jesus Christ. And that is the testimony of a group that turned the world upside down. And oftentimes we resort to so many other things of desiring to see a city or a campus or a world turned upside down, but the simplicity of Jesus Christ is really what we refuse to posture ourselves and even humble ourselves to such weakness of just the declaration of who he is and the dependence. So then we find, if you jump down um, in verse 10, this is Paul and Silas in Berea. And, you know, one of the things that I love, because basically what happens is, is they flee Thessalonica, they go to Berea. Once they're there, um, they're preaching the word and it's received. And in verse 11, it specifies that these people... These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Searching the scriptures daily. 
I mean, that is the posture of our lives, to be searching the scriptures, that whether it's me or another speaker teacher that you're hearing over the web and the internet, there's so much available to us, but that instead of taking it at face value for what someone else has to say, that we would actually take it and search the scriptures. That we would, number one, to analyze it and make sure that it's sound, but also with the expectation that as we're in the word, that the spirit of the living God, the spirit of revelation will speak to our hearts as well and even strike greater understanding and application for the word in which we've, which we've been taught. I oftentimes, in my own life, when there's a lack of the study of the word or even a lack of desire of the word, I honestly, I believe the truest measure, we can say that we love Jesus, we can say that we desire Jesus, we can say that we want more of Jesus, but I believe that the truest measure and reflection of where our heart is before the Lord is our desire for his word. I believe our appetite and our longing to see him through his word is the greatest revealer of our true hunger and desire for him. And the reason that I say that is you think about it, if there is someone that you want to get to know, or if there's information that you desire to obtain, if a letter came in the mail, or an email, or some information via a message on Facebook or whatever, the eagerness and the desire that you would have to read it and to obtain that information of, I have to read it, I have to know what's in there, I have to know what they're saying, I need the information. That, that's the revealing of the desire that we have to obtain understanding and knowledge of whatever information that is. And this is the revealed word of God. This is what has been given to us so that we might clearly see and understand the, the fullness of the Godhead. You know, it's interesting because in Jewish culture, they were taught to pray the scriptures. It was a discipline. It wasn't kind of like a, when I feel provoked or stirred or a spirit of intercession comes on me or a grace comes. It was the discipline of praying the word in Jewish culture. But one of the very specific disciplines that they had is praying the Theophanes, which is literally the places in scripture where God is revealed. So like the time in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel had an encounter in the throne of God, or the time in Isaiah, where Isaiah encountered the holiness of God, or Moses on the mountaintop. All throughout scripture, we have these men and women that with their eyes and their spirit, man, they beheld the beauty of Jesus Christ, and they had face-to-face -face encounter with God. And those are the times when you read the throne room encounters that we actually have the greatest insight into heaven, that we have the greatest insight into the glory of God. And basically what they were taught in Jewish culture is if you want to know God, you should get into those accounts and read them and meditate on them. And there's a realm of understanding that is open to your own spirit as you're reading it. There's a realm that you begin to, as you're reading and mulling over it, it's almost as if your own heart and your own spirit begin to perceive and understand and encounter. That if we desire to know who God is, why wouldn't we read the accounts of those that have seen him and heard his voice the most clearly? Those that have had encounters that we would read and mull it over and over and over again and even long to be drawn into the same kind of encounter. It's the, it's the very same thing that if you desire to know something even in history, if there's an account in history that you lack knowledge of, what do we do? We get a history book. And we find out the details so we can have a descriptive understanding of what took place. I want to learn about, I mean, some of us, it might be actual literal wars 
It might be revivals. It could be any of those things. But when we desire to know the, the, the history, what we do is we go and we find a book and we find an account so we can immerse ourselves in it and gain knowledge and understanding. It is the very same thing that if we desire to know God, if we desire to see him for who he truly is, that we would read the accounts of men and women that have beheld him and encountered the glory in, in the midst of the throne room. We have that in Revelations. I mean, Revelations 4, I think, is one of the most powerful things that if we desire to understand the atmosphere of heaven and what the throne of God is like, to read and meditate upon Revelations 4, 4 the encounter in, in the throne room of God, of what's taking place. And that's the extraordinary thing, is when you read it, you begin to understand the spirit of God and what takes place surrounding him. I mean, the revelation is just astounding. So we find... Um, in verse 11, it's where they, we find that those that, uh, with all readiness, they receive the word and they search the scriptures daily. Um, then if you jump down, it's actually in verse 16 is where it begins, Paul in Athens. And this is kind of where he was provoked to expose and speak out and preach against the false gods. So this is kind of where he was, I love the word that he was provoked. He was stirred. Like he was provoked to action. That there was righteous anger inside of him that provoked him to speak. And then in verse 29, we see Paul saying, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, nothing shaped by art or man, man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained, he has, give, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Here, the preaching, number one, of God, but also of the man Jesus Christ. I actually highlighted that verse. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth or detail right now, but I would highly, highly encourage for this kind of to be another verse that you look into and study, especially in a day and age where there's um, so many contrary teachings of understanding the justice and even the side of judgment in the New Testament, of this even speaking into the, the heart of God, that he cannot deny his very nature to judge sin. This is a New Testament passage. I know oftentimes there's a lot of very prominent teaching and books coming out in our generation, really addressing the fact that judgment was only for the New Testament, that after the cross there is no judgment. But over and over, if you really read the word of God, not necessarily just the highlighted passages that you're used to, but scripture after scripture, it's undeniable that it is the very nature of God that he cannot deny himself and he must judge sin. And this is New Testament where it says, there is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's because of righteousness that he must judge sin. Um, then we find in uh, chapter 18, this is the founding and the establishing of the church at Corinth. This guy covers a lot of territory, huh? I mean, <laughs> um, basically, so what we find here is the founding of the church in Corinth. And if you jump down to verse 18, this is actually where we're going to spend a few minutes here. Um, for some of you, this might be, and the reason I want to give it um, ample time and attention is this might be a new topic that's never been never approached for some of you, but it's actually very key, foundational, and fundamental for the house of prayer. Um, and the ministry that we are a part of and um, connected to. It says, So Paul still remained a good while, 
Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Assyria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at, at Sensria, for he had taken a vow. How many of you guys are familiar? Has anybody ever heard the teaching of Paul the Nazarite? Huh? Oh, never mind. <laughs> Paul the Nazarite. The thing is, is oftentimes when we either hear teaching of the Nazarite, we often will hear very, very strong teaching, obviously, of Samson. He's the most known and famous Nazarite of the Word of God, because it was declared that he was a Nazarite from the womb. Samuel was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. But the extraordinary thing here is that when it talks about the cutting of his hair, if you study different theologians, there's, there's absolutely no discrepancy or disagreement. They basically say the only vow that you can find in the Word of God related to the cutting of hair is the Nazarite vow. So it is believed that, although it doesn't say that it was a Nazarite vow, it just refers to the vow that he took. It is believed that Paul took a Nazarite vow, that this was either the, and most often it's believed that this is actually the cutting of his hair, kind of the end of that season of consecration. The cutting of it that was, and you can actually find it in Numbers chapter 6 is where the Nazarite vow is like really laid out. But in 9 specifically, it, it says that when the days of his separation are fulfilled, that the Nazarite actually is to take their hair and cut it. And that is the end of the, the fulfillment of those days of consecration. So basically what you find is it's never mentioned at the beginning saying, Paul the Nazarite, Paul the Nazarite, Paul the Nazarite. But then you actually find this key passage of scripture that talks about the cutting of his hair, for he had taken a vow which is the Nazarite vow. And the reason I want to take time to look at this is that for me personally, I know that when I look at the book of Acts and I look at the way that the church was functioning in the book of Acts and even specifically Paul's life, I have to be very honest. Men and women of God that are doing such extraordinary works, I stand in awe and wonder, but I also believe that it is obtainable, it's doable, and it's accessible to all of us. I don't believe that anybody in this room is actually distinguishable from the Apostle Paul in the sense that you could not be used to preach the gospel with, such, with the same power, strength, and authority and to see the church multiplied in your generation. But this is what I believe is that oftentimes when you look at men and women of God, and let's just use in the natural since it's the Olympic season, let's use in the natural, I mean the people that are actually winning gold medals Ultimately, what distinguishes them is not so much that they were born with an extraordinary gift. They didn't come out of the womb with the ability to do what they're doing. It was actually through years of discipline and training and a choice that was made. I mean, if you want to put aside the Olympics, put a, we're, we're in a university town. There's people that are striving to be the best doctors, the best lawyers, the very, 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 very best in their field. And that's what they're going after. They're giving their entire life to be, be at the very top of their field. And when we find these Olympians, it was literally, it's literally the choices, the day-to-day -day discipline of their lives, of why they're standing on a platform receiving a gold medal for one day. We see the day of glory, but they know all of the years of sacrifice, of going to bed early when everybody was out partying, they know the years of sacrifice, of rigorous diet and exercise. They know all that went in behind it. And then we see them receive a gold medal and we all go like this. 
surprised and think it's extraordinary. But you want to know something? I, I'm not watching the Olympics, but I assume that when some of them are receiving their medals that they're crying. I would just, I'm just assuming that because in the spiritual sense that when you reach a place of breakthrough or victory or you've almost come to a place of accomplishment, as much as it's glorious, there is a place where you remember all of the pain, all of the sacrifice and what you went through to get there. So as much as it, it, there's joy in that place, there's also tears of going, no one knows the cost that this was to me. Nobody knows. Nobody, those Olympians, I guarantee you that there's places of loneliness inside of them because they have chosen something that their eye was set upon even above companionship or above living the, the way that some of us choose to live. But this is the same thing about Paul. We look at the way that he was used, and yes, there was a grace upon his life, but this is what I believe when you look at the word of God, is it's undeniable this place of consecration and this place of being set apart. It's undeniable the link between how Paul was used and even the men mention of this Nazarite vow that he took. If you look in the Old Testament, for those of you that aren't familiar, Samson was probably, well, no, let, let me back up for those of you that aren't aware. Numbers chapter 6. I should probably turn. Numbers chapter 6. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering, um, consecrates an offering to take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither he shall drink grape juice nor even even eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of, a of the vow, his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the day the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair grow long all the days that he has separated himself to the Lord and shall not, get, shall not go near a dead body. Basically, it goes on even to say that even if a father or mother or a sibling passes away, that because they're separated unto the Lord, that they can't go near a dead body. Now, let me just be very honest. When I read the Nazarite vow, the requirements of not only, it didn't even say strong drink as in alcohol. It was vinegar. It was grape juice. It was, it went so far, not, not just the grape juice, because obviously wine is the fermented grape. Not just the grape juice. It went so far to say you can't have the raisin or the grape. Anything that came from the vine, it is so extreme, and I'm going to be honest, the word is irrational. It's almost like, what's, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, the length of your hair, there is no rationale behind them not allowing a razor to touch their head. There's no rationale behind that. There's no rationale, even, but a lot of it is actually symbolic. And that's actually what it is. It's symbolic and it speaks of things, but if you actually look, Samson, for those of you that don't know, we have Samson, we have Samuel, and we have John the Baptist. All of them took, in a very real sense, the Nazarite vow and lived as Nazarites. All of these men actually were born to women that were barren. They had a barren womb. There was no child coming forth from these women. 
But yet, in the midst of it, two of them had a supernatural experience that literally Samson's father, the angel of the Lord, came and spoke, and John the Baptist's father, the angel of the Lord, came and spoke and said, you will have a child, consecrate this child from the womb. I mean, that's pretty intense. That, like, literally to the point that Samson's mother literally had to adhere to the law of the Nazarite and not partake of those things while the child was in the womb. So from the womb, he was consecrated to the Lord. This was from, and then you actually have Samson, I'm sorry, Samuel, who, it wasn't the angel of the Lord, but for those of you that know Hannah, Hannah was barren, and she's in the temple crying out before the Lord, if you give me a son, I will consecrate him to you all the days of his life. And then Eli comes and speaks to her. He thinks that she's drunk. Um, but there is that encounter that where Eli basically says, go your way, and, and your prayer will be answered. So you find basically, and I'm just going to say the stage is set for all of these people. Samson, it was actually said, the promise to his parents is that he would be a deliverer. It was consecration unto being a deliverer. That was his call, was to be a deliverer. And then you have Samuel, who it is actually said that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And as you guys, anybody that was here a couple weeks ago when we discussed um, Samuel specifically, and that it was before the fire on the altar had gone out. It was, it was symbolic of the presence of the Lord being very, very dim. Then you have Samuel, who comes on the scene as a prophet. He comes bringing the word of the Lord in a very dark, dark, one of the darkest hours in, in Israel's history. You have Samuel, the consecrated Nazarite. Then you have John the Baptist. After 400 years of prophetic silence, there is no speaking or declaring of the word of the Lord for 400 years. Then his father, Zechariah, the angel of the Lord, comes and prophesies about John the Baptist. The extraordinary thing about all of these people is that when you look into their life, Samuel, it was said of him that he grew in, in great stature, and it says, and he grew with both favor with God and man. John the Baptist, it was, it was said of him that he was great in the sight of God. And for those of you that know the story of Samson, he had supernatural strength upon his life. He is kind of like the, the example and the pinnacle and the picture of the Nazarite vow. The strength that was upon Samson's life was so super, literal physical strength. But what we actually find from all of these men, and now bring the storyline to the Apostle Paul, is we find such extraordinary, not just strength of physical stature in nature, strength of spirit. We find them able to stand in the midst of the most difficult hardship, dark circumstances. Paul, as we've looked at often, over and over again, we find this man being persecuted and beaten and yet going back for more. There was something relentless about the Apostle Paul. I know that when we've looked at him over and over, I've just scratched my head and said, I don't know if I would go back to the same city that just stoned me. I don't know if I would go back, but there is something so tenacious about this man. There is something so strong that cannot be denied. When you look at all of these pictures of the Nazarite in the Word of God, there was something of such strength upon them that they were able to come in the midst of such darkness and not come underneath the darkness, but to be able to prevail against it. To be able to be used truly, and Lou Engel actually uses the word, as a hinge of history in that moment. That their life became literally the open door for God to move upon an entire nation. One individual man. That's what we find in Samson's day. For those of you that don't fully know the story of Samson, this man, that in the place of compromise, 
in the place of basically giving, uh, I'll say, a foothold to the enemy, of giving an open door to the enemy, his hair was cut, he lost his strength, and he came into bondage and captivity. That's really a picture of the Church of America, of the place that we have come into agreement with the enemy, and in that place we've lost our strength. But the story of Samson's life is, is that in his last days, his strength was renewed. His strength was restored. But you want to know the extraordinary thing? His strength was returned to him when his locks had grown long. The picture of the Nazarite. When his consecration had returned to him. And he was standing as the rightful Nazarite. The man consecrated to God that he was intended to be. That in his death. Because literally he put his hand against two pillars. He was able to, with extraordinary strength, push them apart. And the Philistines were completely slaughtered. I mean, this right here, Old Testament, the story of redemption and mercy and grace. That regardless of how much we screw it up, get it wrong, go our own way, when we choose to return, the Lord restores in a moment. The Lord said, forever, the Lord is saying, your story is not over yet. Your story is not over yet. The second part of your story is much greater than the beginning. That the Lord wants us to walk in the fullness of what he has destined and ordained and decided before the beginning of time for you. That regardless of our screw-ups, that he doesn't change his mind. That he says, this is still your inheritance, Samson. You are called to be a deliverer. But this is the extraordinary thing is I really believe that as the Church of America where we have done an injustice to our people is that we have never preached that in order to fulfill the rightful place of our calling it is linked to this place of consecration. That strength is found in consecration. Strength is found in being set apart unto the Lord. See what we've wanted to say and it's a, it, it, there's a biblical principle that the gift and the call are without repentance truth. Your gift and your call does not get, be, get taken away from you. He does not take it from us. But what I believe is through shame and unbelief and all of those things, we disqualify ourselves. It's not that he ever says, I'm taking your gift and your call from you. What happens is, is we end up walking in such weakness and such lowliness and such confusion and we end up walking almost in circles that we actually cannot fulfill it. Because in that place of, see, the essence of compromise and the essence, really, of the understanding of purity in the Word of God, and even the understanding of the Nazarite as far as being separated unto the Lord, if you understand, even in a scientific sense, that if you take a solution, let's just use bleach, just a very simple solution that we all know and understand, bleach, that when it's in its purest form of bleach, that it has potency, it has power, it has the ability to accomplish what it's intended to do. But then if you decide to take one part bleach and one part water, what you've basically do, done is you've diluted it. You have, there's, it's, it's mixture. Like I'm not saying mixture in a bad sense, it's a, it's a literal mixture of two substances. And because of that, one loses its potency. And one actually, because of the mixture, it no longer is as strong it's diluted, and it's basically not pure bleach. It's now become one part bleach and one part water. I mean, you could use it with any analogy. You could stick vinegar in there, you could stick dirt in there. I'm just saying it's diluted. And the very, very same thing in understanding, even of when, we're, when we look even more closely at the Nazarite, is this place that before the Lord, our spirit was intended to be pure before him. 
with no mixture, no other parts, no other substitute solutions, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and our own mixing and choosing. And see, what we've done as the Church of America is we've basically said, live how you want, do what you want, be very comfortable in your Christianity. The Lord does not want to impose upon you. He's a happy God. He just wants you to be happy. Pursue your desires, your wants, even your lusts. Just make sure you ask for forgiveness. And you can still fulfill the call of God in your life. But Bible, if we really want to look at Bible, the fact of the matter is he does not take our gift and our call from us, but what it is is we end up disqualifying. The very nature of sin is it destroys. You become confused, disillusioned, in shame, in guilt, lying, deceiving. I mean, it's the whole ball it brings you down. And what we find, even with the story of these Nazarites, it wasn't even the issues of sin that they were separating themselves. This is the crazy thing right here. The Lord didn't say, separate yourself from all profanity and uncleanness and perversion and sexual immorality. What he said was, grow your hair long, don't let the razor touch it, don't drink anything that's come from the vine, don't have any grapes, any raisins. I mean, all of these things are crazy, but number one, the length of their hair Literally what it was symbolizing is the length of their devotion to Jesus or to God in the Old Testament was God. It was the length of their devotion. And you know what that was? It was an outward symbolic act that when they would walk down the street and the long tresses of their hair, it was, they were known and they were marked as a Nazarite. It actually, in Song of Solomon, it actually speaks of the tresses. And when she speaks of her tresses, it actually says the king is held captive by your tresses. And it's locked to the understanding of the Nazarite that God actually becomes captive by somebody who's given in wholehearted devotion. I mean, you actually see that in the story of Samuel. It says he grew in favor before God and man. John the Baptist, it says he was great in the sight of God. Great in the sight of God. That's a place where God's heart was moved by John the Baptist. And it wasn't just because he chose to abstain from the, the sin of the world. It was because he actually said, I want to separate myself to such a degree. This is what you have to understand is wine in that day, it was a cultural norm. Everybody, it was a casual thing. I mean, you drink wine with your meal, you drink wine with your dinner. It's acceptable. No sin. And I am in no way saying that eating grapes, raisins, or wine, or any of those things are sin. But what I'm saying is, is that when you look at the storyline of Paul's life, when you look at the New Testament church that was birthed through this man of God, it came through a man that actually sowed his life in the place of consecration and being set apart. And he understood the mystery of consecration and that it's from consecration that there's strength. See, the Church of America, the weakness that has plagued the church, the inability to prevail in influence culture. All of that comes back to the place of mixture. It's that place where instead of being a pure substance, it's been diluted and it's no longer in its pure form. We've chosen to put in and mix in and do our own and kind of all of those. But what though, basically the law of the Nazarite, what it was speaking to, is it was extreme devotion to God. All of those things were legitimate. See, and what we end up doing in our culture and in our society, even with issues of sin, 
with the issues of entertainment, of how much foul language is too much foul language in a movie, and where is my fine line? How much nudity and profanity is too much, and where is my border and my comfort zone? With foul joking and jesting, and things that we view on the internet, all of these areas, it's kind of like what we do is we push the boundary and the border of how far can I go and still be saved. Or almost, how far can I go for where the Holy Spirit will be grieved and he'll depart from me? Because we wouldn't want him to depart from us. But instead, what you find in the Apostle Paul, actually two times in 1 Corinthians, I'm getting way off subject, but that's okay. Two times in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to tell you in the essence, if you want to understand the vow of the Nazarite, Paul nailed it when he said, all things are lawful, it's lawful. You can do it, you can get away with it, you can plead the blood after you're done, it's lawful. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. See, Paul wasn't going after what was legal and acceptable, he was going after that which was profitable. He was saying, is this actually adding strength to my spirit? Not just can I get by without the Holy Spirit departing from me, but is this something that is causing the increase of the Holy Spirit in my life, an increase of the presence of God? See, his obsession was with giving pleasure to the Father. That was his obsession. And when we live with the obsession of giving pleasure to self, of how much pleasure and comfort and ease and satisfaction can we seek? That's when the boundary lines start to get blurred. But when our greatest ambition is giving pleasure to the Father, that's the place where everything, our conversation, our time, our entertainment, every area of our life is no longer, is it lawful? But then we say, is it profitable? And what we find from all of these men is the extraordinary influence that came from their lives. Great influence. I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, we've been going over this for weeks. I don't even need to outline for you the influence that, that came from this man's life. But what we find is it's undeniable that it's actually linked to this place of consecration and being set apart to the Lord. So what you find is the Nazarite, the length of their hair actually spoke of their vow of consecration of being set apart unto God. And it was a public display. Their, the, the actual eating of their diet, of what they abstained from. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, in our culture, in our day, and in our society, there are really so many things you could choose to be your fast before the Lord, things that aren't sin. And if you're kind of in a place of going, I don't get it, like abstaining from alcohol or a certain kind of drink, like how is that that it's almost like going to add strength to my spirit? I went, um, there was probably a two-year period when we were founding the House of Prayer that I just chose as part of my fast before the Lord to fast coffee for two years. And honestly, not that anybody would know or care or any of those things, but you know what it was? Is that every single time I made the choice, like even in a social setting where, because I like to drink coffee, but, or in the morning when I desperately would need one after doing all night prayer, <laughs> all of those situations, it's really our posture before God of when I would choose not to drink it for those two years, I would literally just be saying, God, unto you, I am saying, I need you more desperately than I need coffee, and I desire you more. It, it speaks of the desire of our heart. And I'm going to be honest, those times when I'm fasting, if, if it's coffee or food or sugar or whatever it may be, it puts life in such perspective when you utter that before the Lord, of just saying, 
I want you more than coffee and I need you more than coffee. All of a sudden, for some reason, that desire for coffee, it's like, yeah, like a big deal, like not even tempting. I can remember for years my dad feeling so bad if he would bring home sweets or I'd be doing like 40 days on liquid and he'd be like, oh my gosh, is this killing you? And people not being, and I mean for those of you in the room that are fasters, you get it, that when that posture of fasting, when your eye is set upon something that you desire more, there isn't even any pull there. There's absolutely no longing and no desire for even those things because the desire that you have for something else far outweighs. And that's ultimately the, the, the call and the cry of a Nazarite is it's willingly abstaining. Not forcibly abstaining, not feeling obligated because somebody else or the community or, you know, whoever. It's willingly abstaining from that which is acceptable. It's perfectly acceptable. You're not sinning. You're not damned to hell. <laughs> it's acceptable. But it's your posture before the Lord so that you can gain that which is otherwise unattainable. It's that posture before him of saying, I desire more of your spirit. And that's actually what we find from these men and, the, and women from Old Testament and New Testament. The strength that was upon their life came from the place of consecration. It came from the place of being set apart. And I know that we have a lot of young adults, college students that come in and out of our ministry. And I continually encourage, as part of your fasted lifestyle, when you are in the college scene here, make alcohol a part of your fast a part of what you set before the Lord. Because there are so many lines that get blurred in when it, during these college years of when you start to open the door to certain things. And there's an extraordinary testimony, actually. Um, I don't know how many of you know who Cheon is. Um, he's over, um, it was Harvest Rock, but HIM is um, Harvest International Ministries. And this is probably the clearest illustration that I've ever heard um, and it's really part of why, like my husband and I, it's been part of our continual vow before the Lord. But he gave the clearest illustration, and what it was is he said he was away with his wife for an anniversary weekend, him and his wife obviously enjoying a time away. And at dinner, he, they chose to have a glass of wine or two. I mean, in no way, obviously the word is very clear, do not be inebriated, do not be drunk with wine. So we're not talking about drunkenness. We're talking about a couple enjoying their anniversary together. No sin found there. So he goes up to bed that night, she falls asleep and the TV is on. And I'm sharing this because he shared it openly, like I'm not confessing somebody else's sin. But he said that the TV was on and, he's, and he very clearly said, I have never struggled with porn. I have never even really struggled with the temptation to view it. It's just an area in his life that the enemy has not had a foothold. But he said as he was sitting there that night, he said, I'm not saying it was pornography, but it was um, sensual enough that he knew that under normal circumstances, he would have been so quick. The response, his responsiveness, it would have been automatic to turn the flicker. Just change it really quick. No questions asked. But he said in that moment, he realized that when he was looking upon something, that he knew it was wrong. He knew it was grieving the Holy Spirit. But yet in that moment, he was delayed for the first time ever. And he said, what I realized was, he said, sin, absolutely not. But the very nature of wine is to relax us. It's to relax you. It's to kind of let your nerves down, put you in a relaxed posture for uh, casual environments, things like that. And what he said is he said, I realized in that moment my guard being down and just even the relaxed posture it put me in, he said, it opened me to view something that I never would have viewed before. And to this day, I regret and I have remorse over seeing it. And he said, and it was from that day forward, is it sin? Absolutely not. But for me, 
and what the Lord has called me to do, it's the posture of my heart before him, I willingly abstain because I want a heart that is vigilant. I want a heart that is watchful. I want a heart that is ever alive before him, not looking to be numbed and not looking to become more passive and relaxed. He said, I'm looking to be more fully awake. So that was the testimony that he gave, but I just know throughout our college experience here that there's oftentimes experimenting that happens and even decisions that are made in that place of, it, it causes you to let down your guard. But this was actually one of the things that the Nazarites set before the Lord, is that it was perfectly acceptable, but it was part of their fast before, before them. And as a, a community of people in the city, you know, Daryl was actually coming in uh, for prayer last night, and we had kind of had a long conference call with a group of people, and just in the mix of details and decisions, all of those kind of things, and Daryl just, it was funny because he was like, I am just not up for tonight. It was just, he was tired, you know, you know those days, just kind of like, and you know, he sits up here and all of you know, he sweats his head off. <laughs> so uh, he just was like, I just, and I looked at him and I said, do you want some perspective? And he said, yeah, sure. I said, historical revival in New England. It's why we do what we do. And he went, okay, I'm, I'm up for this. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, his hope is, and mind you, I'm going to be honest, my posture before the Lord, yes, historical revival. First and foremost, I continually say, I want a heart that is alive and loved before Jesus. Beyond anything else of ministry or Boston being awakened, my first prayer, a heart that's alive and loved before Jesus. But then, a heart that's alive and loved before Jesus, obviously he wants to use and he wants us to be responsible for the culture and the generation in which we live. So then my second response is revival and awakening, historical awakening in New England and beyond. And ultimately, I just want to say for those of you that have that cry in your spirit, to see truly a shifting in the United States of America, even to see shifting in Boston, I encourage you to look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Don't just look at the fruit of his life and desire that kind of influence or even desire that kind of strength in the midst of darkness to declare truth, but look at the foundation of what brought strength to Paul's life. It was the life of consecration, of being set, set apart before the Lord. And I'm not going to say don't eat grapes, and I'm not going to say don't eat raisins, and I'm not going to say don't eat wine, but I would challenge every single one of you in your own heart of hearts before the Lord just, just say, God, what is the posture that I can take before you? What is a place of, it's legitimate, it's even acceptable. Because we're not talking about, yes, get rid of sin. Yeah, we, that's a given. We want to get sin out. <laughs> then we, don't, we want, don't want to participate. But what is a place where we can say, God, my heart is holy after you. And it's a posture of continual fasting before you. And a way of constant. And that was the Nazarite. They were set apart unto God. That, that we would say, God, what is the posture that I can make before you and what would please and move your heart? Let's stand to our feet.
God, we come before you today, God, even as we've been looking at the book of Acts, God, and we just recognize, God, that the strength that we see upon the New Testament church, Lord, in Acts is not the strength that we see upon the Western church in America. And God, we say that we jealously long for the manifestation of your glory in our midst. God, we jealously long, Lord, for the preaching of the gospel to run swiftly and for cities and souls to be saved. God, we ask, Lord, even right now as a company of people, God, as much as we are crying out for historical revival in this city, God, we say, Father, make us instruments and conduits of your presence, O oh God. God, right now, we just say we are not looking to another man, another movement, another woman, another voice, another pastor. But God, we stand before you, God, and we ask, Lord, would you use our individual lives, Father? Lord, in, in individual spheres of authority, God, in business, in finance, in education, God, would you use us to manifest your kingdom and your glory? God, we ask, Father, that as a company of people that we would continually go after the mystery in your word and the understanding of what it is to be separated unto God. God, I ask, Lord, that even amongst this community, God, that we would be those, Lord, that our heart is tenderized to the place of consecration. God, that we would be those even counted with the Apostle Paul, that the cry of our spirit, Lord, would be that we don't want that which is lawful, but we want only that which is profitable, Father. God, we say we don't want that which you will allow, but we want that which you will take pleasure and delight in, O oh God. God, we just say that we want every area of our life to be a pleasing offering. God, a fragrant aroma before you of worship. So God, we even ask, would you just speak to our hearts even now, God, any any area of our life, God, that we can just offer you as a free will offering. God, we specifically ask, God, any areas, Lord, in our lives that we use to seek comfort and consolation and peace and even ease outside of your presence, that those would be the places that we offer to you. God, that we would seek nothing outside of you. God, deliver us, God, from seeking lives of self-indulgence. And God, we say that instead of self-indulgence, God, we want to seek lives of wholehearted abandon before you. God, I ask, Lord, that even amongst us, God, that the legitimate pleasures of this life, legitimate things that we could do, that are even acceptable in the eyes of man and even the eyes of church culture. God, we say we want to be those that will willingly and with joy and with delight offer them to you as a sacrifice, as a posture of fasting and being set apart unto you.
God, in that place of fasting and being set apart, Lord, as it restores vigilance and even strength, God, even as we see in the life of the Nazarite, God, we ask, Lord, that we would be those that would return to a, a consecrated posture before you, that strength could be restored to us. God, we pray for the church of Boston, that it would be clothed in glory and honor, that strength would be restored to your bride, that even as you have declared you're coming for a church without spot or wrinkle. God, I ask, Lord, would you renew our understanding of holiness? Would you renew our understanding of purity? Would you renew our understanding of righteousness, oh God? God, we ask, God, would you deliver us from mindsets and even theology of mediocrity? God, would you deliver us even from a false gospel of compromise, oh God? And God, we ask, Lord, that you would baptize us in the fire of your, your Holy Spirit in an understanding of wholeheartedness, the jealous heart of God. God, deliver us from lukewarmness and compromise. Deliver us from half-heartedness and mediocrity. God, we cry out for the strength of the gospel once more. That we would be wholehearted and that we would stand to prevail in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. offer prayer to anybody that would like anything specific, a prayer of agreement. We're just going to open the altar now before we close out for anybody that wants a prayer of agreement.